navigating the datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to the July 2020 episode of the Datascape Cloud Update Podcast. This is the podcast where we distill the latest cloud announcements from the leading public cloud vendors and help you know what matters and what to pay attention to. Our format is casual interactive discussion with industry experts, and I'll introduce those experts now. Today, I'm joined with Pirig, who will be discussing the AWS updates. Hey, Pirig, welcome back. Hey, hi, Chris. Uh, thank you for having me. Glad to do uh, an update podcast. Haven't done one in a while. Yes, it's great to have you back, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you've got to talk about. And uh, also joining us today is uh, Stefan Frechette, who will discuss the GCP updates. Hey, Stefan, how are you doing? Very well, Chris. Thank you for having me this morning. So looking forward to share some of the uh, announcements and new stuff on the GCP platform. Absolutely. Missing from the cast today is Mr. Warner Chavez. The reason is Warner and I distilled the Azure updates in our Recapping Microsoft Build podcast episode. So today, I think we're going to start with Stefan and GCP. So it looks like BigQuery had some security updates. You want to walk us through? Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Chris. So uh, one of the announcements was called the uh, Table Level Access Control, so Table ACLs, which is kind of important to control the data and share with the, at the finer granularity. So what Table ACL brings is a closer compatibility with other types of data warehouses out there systems that provide that security context in the um, data space for when it comes to specific security. So Table SEL is really built on top of existing cloud IAM, so cloud identity and access management, where BigQuery lets you organize and provide controls over access to data sets, projects, and folders. But what table level ACLs, you can use the same control at the table scope, satisfying what we call the principle of least privileges, true? And this capability is combined with the existing one, which is the column level security, which enables and help organization effectively implement governance around data and regulatory compliance, such as, as an example, GDPR and et cetera. So think about table ACL enabling you to share a single table for reading and for writing without the surrounding data set. So this capability opens up different use cases while being able to share a single table externally let's say with an outside contributor or within your organization. So you're really segregating access control at the individual table level and not at the data set. So this feature is currently in beta and I think it's a great addition. So it's shown that Google Cloud and specifically for the BigQuery services is enabling some of the key security features, like I mentioned, that are actually readily available in other data warehouses and operating systems at the RDBMS level. So I think it's great. It's a great addition. So so, uh, it's in beta and I uh, strongly recommend everyone to use it. Yeah, yeah, that is a good feature and it's good to see them. You know, I would call this part of the growing up set of feature sets. Yeah, and it's only getting better, true. So as we, we've seen, there's been a lot of announcements lately for the past couple of weeks and months. Just BigQuery turned 10 years old recently. So there was some great shows around that that was available out in the community. And we'll talk about that later on on some of the key points. So absolutely. Yeah. Array for BigQuery. So some great stuff in addition. Yeah, absolutely. Pirig, it uh, looks like there was a Lambda update you wanted to talk about. Great. So it's actually a new feature uh, available to Lambda functions. And so this is the possibility to mount the Amazon Elastic File System, EFS, which is Amazon's version of the NFS file system. 
And so it spans across highly available zones for high availability, and it's uh, there's good durability in this uh, file system. And there were some limitations on um, AWS Lambda functions. And so this brings a new set of possibilities to your Lambda functions. So before this, you would be limited on the disk space available in your function. So it was uh, approximately 512 megabytes. So that was uh, quite small, right? So you can really process data locally or copy some large amounts of, of data to your function. Now this makes it possible. You want to share, you know, updated versions of files that are happening on EFS. So this is now uh, uh, possible. You can package some larger functions than before because of this uh, newly available disk space. So you can like embed in your function some data science packages, for example, that will require more room. So you can do load models and dependencies and so on. Now you can save the state of your function in this because this file system is, is durable, right? So once the function finishes running, that this space is still there. So now you can now store your state of your function after it, it runs. So yeah, access to large amounts of reference data. Um, some some of your legacy applications could just not go in uh, Lambda because of the limited disk space, and, and now you can do that. You can have some sensitive data workloads. You can set some different EFS endpoints, which are used to connect the Lambda functions to EFS. And so you can have them on a per path basis, different ACLs, different permissions, and so on. So it's quite flexible. So yeah, definitely a, a great feature. This is going to you know make a, we can, we're going to see a lot more of usage of Lambda because of this uh, new feature, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So, so, Gary, so, so yes, what would be but, the typical use case for that? So would it be like cache value lookups or something? So how, what would be the potential use case for that? So the use case would be, let's say, to share data to process to you with your Lambda function, for example. You know, you yeah. could have like a source folder there on your EFS file system and you could, you know, be feeding new data into it. And the Lambda function would directly have uh, access to it via its map point. So that's that's one example. Okay, cool. Thank you. Alrighty, and so Stefan, let's come back and talk about the cross-region replicas for Cloud SQL. Yeah, finally. So what it provides is you really want to minimize recovery point objectives across your replicas, and you want to minimize recovery time objectives in your application. And specifically, if you want to make globally distributed applications faster, well, that's what replicas enables you. So what they've announced recently is the availability for MySQL and Postgres database engine where it makes it easy to fully create and manage read replicas in a different region than your primary instance when you create one for your MySQL and Postgres. So great addition. I think it was uh, on the path for quite a while. So people can now have what we call full-fledged application that is durable and secure and then actually replicated into other instances for fault tolerance. So I think it's a great addition. So, yeah, really not much to say over there. It's just a feature that was uh, well-awaited for these two. Hopefully, what they'll do is SQL Server is not part of that offering right now. So I think that's something that will be in the near future, either in beta or announced, where we'll have the same feature set for uh, cross-region replication introduced at the SQL Server level for managed uh, databases on the uh, Google Cloud. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and I know it's new, so you may not know the answer yet, but is it when you're setting up your cross-region replicas for MySQL and Postgres, is it something that you're doing through the cloud console and the Google does it, or are you doing it in the database configuration itself? Actually, in the cloud console itself, true. So typically it could be done through uh, G-Cloud commands, absolutely true, but it has a point-and-click interface within the actual console where you can select which region for your read replicas. 
based on your instances and uh, off you go true so absolutely okay. pretty easy once you create one thing i haven't tried and i can't confirm is that if you already have instances running which you've deployed can you instantiate cloud replicas and i'm sure you can but i can't confirm that unfortunately i haven't played with it yet but uh, it should be a, a breeze to implement yeah, yeah, awesome. And then, uh, Pierre, why don't you introduce the world to AWS Code Artifact? Yes, so this is a, a new, a very interesting product, in my opinion. So, historically, uh, companies have had artifact software usually running on-prem. So, this software was either probably JFrog or Artifactory. There are several of them out there. And so, what that piece of software does, it's, it serves as a binary package, uh, kind of database thing, where you go and store, you know, your different versions of jars that you build, your custom jars that you have in your company. But you also sometimes, you know, set up mirrors of public repositories, such as maybe, you know, you're copying over some packages from PIP or from, or from Maven or from Gradle, whatever. And so this allows those servers where you need to deploy these binary packages to not go over the internet to pull these packages. So you're, this allows you to make this more secure, right? They're going over to this local mirror to download these packages. And so there's no over the internet communication. So AWS released Code Artifact, and it's a nice piece of software, all configurable through the AWS console. So you have views to create repositories. You can mirror public repositories. You can create your own push packages and so on. AWS provides all the code samples for you to set up. For example, a PIP on your machine to work with these uh, local repositories. Same goes with Maven and NPM and, and all that good stuff. So um, yeah, definitely this is... AWS uh, competing with third-party products that companies were installing in AWS on their own. Now AWS is, is providing the service, which I'm sure a lot of companies will, will definitely leverage. Do you think that, I mean, the answer is kind of obvious that it'll probably reduce the market, but uh, with the third parties, will it devastate the third-party market for those tools? <laughs> it's not impossible. <laughs> yeah. This is the danger of the cloud, right? It comes and eats your product. Yep. Stefan, let's talk about Cassandra coming on to GCP. Yeah, that was a great announcement. So Datastack, Cassandra as a service. So a service called Astra, true. So it's now available in the Google Cloud Marketplace. That means that you can now have a single unified bill for all your Google Cloud services as well for Datastack's Astra. So I think it's a great addition at the RDBMS world and a NoSQL available database on the GCP platform. So I think it's available for only certain regions. For now, I think there's only uh, seven of them right now. U.S. East one is one of them is in Europe. So yes, if you're having a workloads that use Cassandra database directly on top of Google infrastructure, so that's what Astra deploys for you. They manage instance running your Cassandra database. So just a great addition to the arsenal of what Google Cloud Platform is making available for the database world out there. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And it appears the developers at Datastacks were probably very busy because, Pyrrhic, why don't you talk about Amazon Keyspaces? Oh, yes. Okay. So uh, Amazon Keyspaces. So this is Amazon's iteration of Apache Cassandra. And so this is a, a great feature. Basically, you can deploy a large Apache Cassandra cluster just with uh, the click from a, a console page. So we're really a nice feature. It looks like I got it wrong. So it's pure Apache Cassandra and not the DaySex implementation of Cassandra? Well, that's what's uh, not exactly clear at this point, right? So it's uh, AWS's version of Cassandra. Hard to say right now uh, what are the exact differences right there. 
I would expect this to be mostly based around the open source version, but time will tell. As soon as I can get my hands on it, I'll know more. What I know now, though, is that, you know, everything is driven through the console. So you have a CQL interface in the console. So you can go and type in your queries, click on run and so on. Um, so it's fully fledged. It's a, really a prime citizen on AWS because you can deploy it with the automation tools there. So CloudFormation works with it. You have some different pricing models, so you can go with the um, on-demand, so basically pay-as-you-go kind of model, and then you can do the provision capacity. So that costs a bit less, but you know you uh, schedule something with a set amount of uh, resources for your cluster. So right now, some examples we're seeing a lot of people are working with Amazon API gateways, AWS Lambda, and they are now you can create a serverless application backed up by uh, Cassandra just on, on AWS Lambda. So that's pretty good. Good stuff. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, what people do with Cassandra and those other clouds. There certainly are a lot of great choices around it. And I think from a Cassandra perspective, they're all available now into the uh, major cloud vendors. True, I know Azure has an offering within their Cosmos DB from an mm-hmm. API perspective. And then now you got AWS and then Google Cloud partnering like with Datastax and offering their Astra offering within their cloud marketplace. I think that speaks well about the use of Cassandra within the, the online community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had um, one of the very early Datascape episodes. We had John Schultz on to walk the uh, audience through Cassandra. It's still a very popular episode. And yeah. very relevant and uh, maybe okay. time to get him back to uh, talk about how to choose where to run your Cassandra. Exactly. That will be an interesting topic. And I'm sure he has uh, either opinions or some good tips and tricks that will be uh, very useful for the community. Yeah, no doubt. So, Stefan, it looks like there were a number of stream analytic updates on GCP. Yeah. So, again, on a regular basis, there's been some uh, either additions or some products that became GA. So let's talk about one very quickly. So uh, Dataflow SQL is now GA. Dataflow SQL usually lets analysts, engineers use their SQL skills to be able to develop uh, Dataflow pipelines directly within the um, BigQuery uh, UI. So anything about windowing functions, time-based queries and stream engine for parallel processing, that's what Dataflow SQL enables you specifically around the BigQuery uh, UI. So on that front, from that same specific, there's been a recently added command line interface that helps you script your production jobs to fully support query parameters. So that's great. And then uh, there was a, something integrated with Data Catalog where you can use built-in schema editor for schema management. So there's been a lot of, I would say, community, or I was looking at some GitHub repos that showcases some sample interaction with data catalog. So data catalog, as we mentioned in prior shows and episodes, was about governance, data management capabilities, schema around data sets that are available within Google Cloud and then also externally. So that's quite interesting from that perspective. So the other one is the ability to write interactive pipeline within Jupyter Notebooks. So we know that notebooks, you can actually build your pipeline from the ground up using the AI platform notebooks to deploy even with your Dataflow runner. So basically, authoring your Apache Beam pipelines and expecting your pipelines in your workflow. So it's available through Google's API platform. These notebooks allow you to write these pipelines in a known environment with the latest data science and machine learning frameworks that people and developers, data scientists have been accustomed to for uh, their ease of experience. The other addition was the Dataflow templates. 
scaling with the flex template. I know it's been a, uh, especially on, I'll speak for myself, using data flow and templates. So if what I understood from this, I haven't uh, tried it yet, is the fixed template enables you to use or create templates out of existing data flow pipelines, just so custom templates to be able to share them within your organization and then you're, cool. when you're building your data pipelines. Also, the um, general availability of PubSub data letter topics. So just for uh, the interest of our audience, so dead letter is really when a message cannot be processed by the subscriber within your application. So typically what you want is allow this message to be put aside for further examination and troubleshooting and debugging so that the rest of the message can be processed within your feed, let's say your incoming PubSub feed. So this has been in beta and now it's generally available. True. So it's called dead letter topics within PubSub. Another interesting one, uh, which was really uh, something I heard for me personally recently on working with customers and on different projects around change data capture. (laughs) So there's been something announced about providing the ease. And I think it's only relevant for now for moving MySQL data out to BigQuery. But it enables you, and it's a mix of Debezium. I don't know if you guys are well aware of what Debezium is as an open source. The Dataflow team has developed this sample solution that lets you ingest streams of data and change data coming from any kind of MySQL database to BigQuery. So I think it's available in GitHub. I know maybe we can share this within our, our notes, within the capture, but uh, it's something that I really want to spend time investigating. Too. So change data capture is a, such a, when you're migrating some either lines of business source systems from on-prem to the cloud, especially on the GCP platform, Change data capture is always a, an interesting topic, too, and something that you need to consider, too. So I'll be spending some time looking at that. Maybe in future upcoming shows, we'll talk about it. So it's been available, and it's put out there. So I highly recommend people looking at it. And, uh, yeah, essentially, what else? Integration with the cloud AI platform. So now you can take advantage of the existing AI platform APIs to access any types of libraries to implement advanced analytics use cases. So the AI platform in Dataflow includes different video clip classification, image classification, NLP natural text analysis, data loss prevention, and a number of other streaming predictions, use cases. So that's pretty much it. Yeah, that's a whole bucket full of updates. For, um, that's awesome. Still with the streaming topic, but a little bit unusual for this podcast. Pirik, why don't you talk about AWS's Elemental Link? Oh, right. So the Elemental Link. So this is for video streaming. So this is actually interesting, I find, because, uh, you know, uh, once in a while, AWS releases some uh, material products. So uh, remember uh, that little drone there a while a while back, that little rover, obviously the Snowflake appliance to do your, your backups. Well, this one is an appliance made in partnership with, I guess, Elemental to make a streaming appliance, a video streaming appliance. So you basically purchase this device for a bit less than $1,000 a US, I believe, and you get delivered with a small device, which is uh, about, I would say, you know, uh, 12 inches by three inches, more or less. And it has an HDMI input and it has, it connects to your network. And so you're basically uh, ready to plug in an HDMI camera or a 3G SDI camera to your device and uh, you're off to streaming onto AWS. And so this technology 
will adapt the encoding to the bandwidth that you have available. So you know it's a low latency solution. So it's a, a really good way of, of streaming uh, live video for events, shows, or, or whatever. But the purpose is live streaming, right? Not as much as sharing already created videos. Right. So yeah, an interesting offering. Yeah, definitely. And we'll stay with you. I'd like to discuss the um, enhancements to Amazon Macy. Yes. So Amazon Macy, it's not a very well-known AWS service, in my opinion. So it, let's, it's the data loss prevention service on the AWS cloud. And so what's really important about this is that the pricing has reduced by 90%. 90%. Wow. So that's like a huge drop in the prices. And so we should see a lot more adoption. It was actually quite expensive. And you needed to enable some other costing features, right, in AWS to get it work before. So you had to enable advanced cloud trail for your Amazon buckets for it to be able to crawl your buckets. And so that is no longer needed. So you don't have like other hidden costs by using Amazon Macy anymore. So what it does, it can crawl your buckets and it looks for sensitive data. And you have, it comes preloaded with a bunch of AI models that you can use to identify PII information or your own customer defined information. And then it can automatically take actions on what it finds. So either just let you know that this information is there and that it's sensitive or obfuscate it or mangle it or, or do whatever. So you have a lot of options there. You schedule the sync at which you want this to run. So at this time, I believe this is meant to run once a day. But we could see um, maybe in the future some uh, more granularity there or even maybe some some real time. Yeah. yeah, quite similar to existing service and capabilities within the Google Cloud Tree for uh, you know running through your BigQuery data sets and with DLP and not identify any critical or data that would need to be uh, further masked or... Um, Exactly. Yeah. And the experience to set it up is very similar to the one on, on Google Cloud. It's pretty much the identical interfaces. <laughs> I'm just wondering why the 90% price drop was there. It was just like adoptability, but in the community, was it like a... Uh... I think the price reduction comes from the way that the information in the buckets are evaluated. So now the, the service can actually go and check at the objects directly, whereas before it relied on the additional uh, log audit trail to do that. Or so metadata, okay. Yeah. Right, metadata. So it mostly comes from there. But also, I believe, you know, there, the adoption was low, and so this is in sense to make some people try out the service. It also comes with a, a free tier, and a, I think you get like almost a month free when you enable it to try and figure it out and see, see if it's going to work for you. Hmm, cool. We'll stick with you for one more, period. Why don't we talk about, this is near and dear to my heart because I can never find anything. I drive everyone crazy with resend me this, resend me that. But uh, talk about Amazon Kendra. Yeah, right. So Amazon Kendra, this is a, a very interesting product. It is basically a search engine indexer for your applications. And it works on data that you have in AWS. So you can tell it to um, index these files, the content of these files in S3 buckets, index this or that on different AWS services. And then you have natural language search. So search like, how do I connect to a VPN or how do I do this and that? The engine knows how to interpret natural language. And so it works uh, quite efficiently. Before this, people would have to go in and set up their own infrastructure, maybe a solar uh, cluster or an Elasticsearch cluster and do their mappings, support this language or this other language. And it was, you know, a bit of work to get going. 
especially the indexing portion. And so this is just going to work with everything AWS out of the box in a few clicks. And so definitely I could see this uh, being used quite a bit for indexing, you know, content on your web page, that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, Stefan, why don't we talk about Dataproc Hub? Oh, absolutely. So here's my understanding here on um, what this is all about. So Dataproc brings together the interactive data research and scale at ML from within the same notebook environment. So as Dataproc, what it is really is the uh, Spark and Hadoop offerings as a managed services within Google Cloud. Dataproc provides notebook as an optional component. So an AI platform notebooks is the Google Cloud managed services for Jupyter Labs so environment, so where you can run your deep learning compute engine instances. And what's been happening right now is that the ask for the community data scientists was that when I stand up Dataproc, I have to know my specific versions, which type of libraries that I want to load in my environment. This can prove very cumbersome and often repetitive feature set when they're sending that up. And then for people maintaining these environments, so how can they be provide to their users internally within the organization the ready-to-use environment but had little means to be able to either customize these environment based on specific user needs within the organization? So I'm talking more about data analysts and data scientists. So hearing what the community voiced out about the flexibility of running interactive Spark tasks and environments where they can load up their specific ML libraries and being able to set up their specific instance. So this is what Data Proc Hub is about too. So it addresses those needs. So Data Proc Hub is built on core Google Cloud products that we all know, cloud storage, API platform, notebooks, and Data Proc, and specifically the open source Jupyter Hub, Jupyter Labs. So by combining all of this, so what it enables is a fast way for the uh, analysts, data scientists within an organization to quickly select specific Spark-based predefined environment that they need, but having to understand all the possible configurations and required operations to be able to set stand up their environment. So combining this simplicity with the existing features and offering from Dataproc has its advantages. So it facilitates the specifically administrator to standardize environments and make it easier for both themselves, administrators, and data scientists to be more productive. So it's really um, combining best of both worlds and hearing out what the community was struggling with when using these some of these services. So it's providing that, like I said, best of both worlds existing platforms within Google Cloud and enabling faster throughput and uh, use of these technologies. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, yeah, right. And so, Peric, we'll come back to you and talk about some of the streaming updates to AWS Glue. Right, so AWS Glue just got a few nice features added to it, mostly around uh, streaming. So before this, AWS Glue worked mostly in a batch way, although you could do micro batches, so mm -hmm. increase the interval at which uh, the Glue crawler would run. But now you can actually hook it up to obviously streaming sources of which Amazon can assist data streams, of course, but also Apache Kafka and the Amazon MSK. So the managed Kafka service we talked about on our last podcast here. So now Glue is able to connect to these two and ingest uh, data in real time and write it to your data lake on Amazon S3. And so it can, it actually running Spark code. So it's up to you to build your Spark code to do whatever transform you need to do. And it's a managed service. So you just deploy your Spark code. It will be run on AWS Glue nodes and those will scale up and down as necessary to deal with the amount of real-time traffic that you're, you need to process. So definitely some very good additions to Glue there. Yeah, indeed. 
So let's also talk about AWS Transfer. Right. So this is, in my opinion, this is something I've seen quite a bit where I have some customers who aren't like the most tech savvy people on the planet. They still rely on some older technologies, such as um, FTPs, FTPS, or SFTP kind of data transfer things. And up until now, I believe it's right in Google Cloud too, but you have to build your own custom solutions to do this. And so this is like something dead simple that has been around for ages. And it's nice to see, you know, this kind of support coming instead of forcing customers to go and learn, you know, the S3 commands and the S3 clients. Now there is the possibility to use FTP and FTPS on top of SFTP with your AWS buckets. So yeah, you can set these up quite easily on uh, buckets. You decide which protocol you want to enable. You can enable just local user accounts and password on that specific FTP endpoint. And so you manage those users and password through the CLI or through the web interface, or you can hook them up to, you know, a third per Amazon IAM, of course. Mm-hmm. So yes, yeah, I think this one, we will see, you know, a lot of customers and reluctant to use S3 because of this. And I think we should see more adoption. This is a nice, a nice feature in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. And it looks like uh, AWS continues to invest in Canada. Yes. And so we have a new AZ coming in the uh, central region, which is on Montreal, right? And so I believe the first two AZs are on the island of Montreal, whereas this one is approximately 45 kilometers away from Montreal. So this is to have, uh, you know, a good redundancy, highly available settings in Montreal. And so this is going to make it possible for AWS to open some new services, which aren't possible in Canada until now. And so, you know, how products are not always available in all regions. Well, now with the um, addition of this new AZ, we should see a a whole bunch of new services possible to run in Canada. And what's interesting here is that, you know, they paid attention to historical data when they build out these new data centers. And so here, the, the big one was the big ice storm that we had in 1998, you know, we brought power down for a long, long time, catastrophic uh, damages all over. And so, you know, they, they take that into account. And so they're using only half aerial cables. Um, the other half is underground. You know, they take so really well thought out. And so definitely this Montreal zone, there's no way there could be an outage in the three zones at the same time in the event of uh, such a similar catastrophe. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, very good for all Canadians and uh, well, and, <laughs> and, and, you know, yeah. businesses and uh, yeah, no, that's that's good. That's yeah, yeah. Hey. Let, let's shift over and talk about Google Cloud next. I was super disappointed that we didn't get to attend in person this year. Obviously, you know, good reasons behind that, but I was really looking forward to meeting with customers and fellow technologists and my team. We were all you know slated to go together. So, Stefan, why don't you walk us through the uh, changes? Yeah, well, so uh, if everybody's either hooked up on the some of the emails and follow up on Google, so what they announced is Google Cloud Next 20 on air. So this will be uh, starting July 14. I think it's going to run till September 8. So they're saying that almost to 200 sessions will be available, ranging from compelling keynotes to industry luminaries talking about opportunities, and specifically with top Google developers and exactly kind of the same not audience, but people that we would have seen at Google Next in San Francisco. So I think it's a great way for Google to keep abroad and uh, the pulse of the uh, community by offering this. We've seen other companies out there offering these types of same conferences session free in this time of COVID-19. So I think this is great. I hope that everybody is jumping on it. There's a uh, 
I'm sure I haven't looked at them recently, but I think the, some of the either agenda and topics are going to be lined out very soon, shortly, so people can register, fill the, their calendars. The good thing, like anything else, like the ones that even uh, that were available at Google Next last year, is that these are recorded very quickly and they're available either late in the evening or the next morning, too. So don't feel compelled to attend all of them. Hopefully, if you can, that's even better because I'm sure there's going to be interactions and QA sessions as part of these sessions. But yeah, you can actually watch them, uh, you know, the next day or whatever at your convenient level, true. So again, I, th I think this is a great announcement from Google. I'm looking forward and I'm sure there's going to be some announcements that we either put on the slide or we're not, even though there's been some since the official date of Google Next in April, but uh, I'm looking for maybe some more bang for the buck and major announcements that will be come up of these sessions. The interesting is, is that there is, it spread quite well. So it starts in July and it goes till September 8th. So quite a huge gap, but that, again, true. So keeping yeah. the momentum. So I think that's a great one, true. Song. Yeah. So I'm really torn about this. So in one hand, I love the fact that it's going to be recorded because I can never get into the popular sessions because I just never have my act together. You know, I've already <laughs> registered for the ones I want to listen to, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what they have to say. But the other hand, for me, conferences, it's the times I've shared cabs with folks or bumped in and then, you know, sat with people. I, don't, I make a point of sitting with people I don't know at mealtime. And, you know, it's the interactions with my fellow conference goers and, and Googlers themselves. So yeah. um, I'm really torn. Like in one hand, I'm going to get better tech information, but I'm going to miss out on the part I enjoy the most. Yeah, and I, I totally hear you. It's the same for me through that getting the moment to meet either new folks, new resources that you either heard about on the web or on the net, getting the opportunity to interact, ask questions or learn from their experiences. Yeah, so I think in, in a way that it will not be the same, but there's, I think, they're opening up the platform where you'll be able to share some insights and mm -hmm. connect with experts, but it's not the same thing. I totally agree with you. So hopefully in this time of pandemic, next year will prove different and then we'll be able to enjoy and, and interact to, uh, with some of the communities and peers out there. Too, so. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Awesome. And we'll see what AWS does as well with uh, reInvent. I'm sure they'll be doing something similar. And then uh, there's another live event that you wanted to, or live streamable learning event that you wanted to talk about. Stefan, why don't you uh, talk about it? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a, actually an online meetup. So it's called the Live with Google Cloud Developer Relations. So uh, this is a nice little meetup online. They've been running for quite a couple of weeks now. And then I think in uh, mid-May, there was one on the uh, anniversary of BigQuery. So I highly recommend people signing up. So it's on Meetup. It's called Live with Google Cloud Developer Relations. There's been some great topics so far. I was able to attend maybe one live. The other ones, as everything, they're all recorded. They're available on their YouTube channel. So I think yesterday was one around the intro machine learning with Google Cloud Vision. So people like uh, Yuvgen is there, Fernando which is a really well-known, Felipe, uh, sorry, Felipe Alpha, sorry, yeah, well-known within the BigQuery community. And Yuvgen Guo are the key players in there. So I highly recommend people signing up. So again, it's uh, it's free, it's online, and there's even interactions uh, while the sessions are going. So cool. Yeah. Yeah, and there will be a link in the show notes, folks, for that. So uh, you'll be able to click on it. And uh, I think it's great too. Another, you know, I, I can't go to Santa Clara very easily, and uh, especially now. So being able to access that learning is, is great. I mean, that's the, that is one good thing about it. And, but also, you know, Stefan, I, I was kind of curious. I know that you uh, co-run the GDG group in Ottawa. What are you guys doing? 
That's an interesting question. So yes, yeah, so I uh, with some of my teammates, specifically Carlos Timiteo and Jennifer, we run the uh, what we call our GDD Cloud Ottawa Google Cloud Meetup. So likely, I think the last two ones we've done them online too. So there's a we have our internal Slack group where people can join and we post events and times. It's actually also a meetup. As an example, we had one on Tuesday where Jennifer was talking about debugging Kubernetes deployments, really geared toward developers on the GCP platform running a GKE instance. So it was quite an interesting topic. Not a big crowd, but great interaction. We usually start off with some you know, key announcements and happening out in the field and then in the community. And then we set the stage for the speaker. We usually have one or two speakers mm-hmm. and we try to keep it at a minimum. So sometimes it's a 20 to 30 minute quick talk, call them lightning talks, whatever. Sometimes we, in the past, we've delved a little bit deeper where they can go to 75 to 90 minutes of really deep dive discussions. And sometimes it's interacting with the presenter on some code and some stuff. But uh, these are um, quite interesting and we're seeing because of these times in pandemic, people joining and trying to learn and getting to new content and sharing some knowledge over there. So I think it's great. So I like doing it with the team and the guys. So and then uh, we're trying to do it once a month. Mm -hmm. So keeping the the crowd engaged in the community. So, yeah, and I'm not sure I can't, but I'm not sure that the last one was actually recorded. So and that's something that we want to do in the future. The interesting part is that we've used Google Meet. So I don't know why the before that we used the first one, we used Zoom. It didn't go well. <laughs> right. And then we used another open source product. And I said to the team, hey, let's use Google, our, our own products. Or right. The it is a Google meeting. <laughs> exactly. True. So, and you know what? It went smooth. And I also turned on the uh, caption. So it was right. Interesting. I was looking at the screen and the uh, caption. The caption was really uh on target, true. So I was amazed at the uh, clarity and then um, the interaction. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So GDD Cloud Ottawa Meetup, as you know, there's a, a huge GDD community out there. Not only Ottawa, I'm speaking for myself and the team here because I'm based in Ottawa in Canada, but there's a huge community that people can actually engage and sign up on some of their local meetups. So mm-hmm. highly recommend. Now, you mentioned local meetup. Just one last question on this. Like, do you have to be from Ottawa to get accepted into your meetup group? Can you attend if you're from the U.S. or something? No, absolutely not. True. So I've signed up to other different meetups because some of them, like we mentioned specifically in this in this time, true, is that they're offering some of these uh, content online. But you don't need to be Ottawa-based. You can come from anywhere. So it's open to everybody. Of right. course, when we uh, when this again pandemic slides it up and, and uh, it gives us the opportunity to network and get together. Our meetups are more local where we either do them at the office, at Pitch-In, or at some other location where we have partnership. Mm-hmm. So it's more of a physical interaction, networking. We can have a beer, discuss, and, and get to know each other. But, yeah, no, it's open to everybody, too. So. Okay, great. We'll include a link to that in our show notes as well. So if you want to check out Stefan's group, he's uh, it's probably very good. Uh, that's actually how we met. Uh, he's run other user groups, and I used to speak at them when I was a close, little closer. So highly recommend you uh, give it a, check it out and see what they're talking about. Well, that's all the time we had today, folks. The biggest compliment you can give us is by helping others to find us, and you can do that by telling a friend or writing a short, honest review somewhere. We always welcome feedback here, so please send that over at datascapepodcast at gmail.com, and I read and respond to every email that I get. Thanks all, and have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape.